Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Thursday, February 8th, 2024. The Supreme Court hears oral arguments in the Colorado case over whether Donald Trump should be disqualified from running again for president under the 14th Amendment's Insurrection Clause. A lot of news articles and commentary concluding the justices appeared skeptical to do that. Coming up, we hear questions from the justices to the attorneys in this case. Analysis from legal affairs reporter from The Hill, Zach Schoenfeld, and reaction from Donald Trump and Colorado's Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold. Plus a perspective from inside the courtroom from C-SPAN's communications director, Howard Mortman. The special counsel investigating President Biden said in a report that he's decided no criminal charges are warranted against President Biden over his handling of classified material after he left the vice presidency in 2017. But the special counsel found evidence that President Biden had willfully retained and disclosed some sensitive material. The Senate votes to begin debate on a $95 billion foreign aid bill providing money for Ukraine, Israel, Palestinians, and Taiwan, with 17 Republicans voting yes. But getting to a final vote on the bill may take some time. Negotiations continue over what amendments will be allowed to be offered. The CEOs of major pharmaceutical companies testified before the Senate Health Committee with committee chair Bernie Sanders saying their drug prices are too high. And the Treasury Secretary goes before the Senate Banking Committee warning that a slump in the commercial real estate market needs to be monitored and could be a cause of concern for the financial health of some banks and, by extension, the entire economy. An article at TheHill.com begins, The Supreme Court on Thursday appeared reluctant to take the extraordinary step of disqualifying former President Trump from appearing on the ballot during a historic oral argument in which the judges grilled lawyers about whether states have the authority to ban a candidate from running for office. Joining us now is one of the authors on that story, Zach Schoenfeld, courts and legal reporter for The Hill. Thanks for being with, the, with us. Why do you say reluctant? What did you hear? Well, over the course of about the two-hour argument, we heard the justices not getting into all of the issues of whether January 6th can be considered an insurrection, whether Donald Trump himself can be considered to have engaged in insurrection and therefore disqualify him under the 14th Amendment. Instead, we saw the justices really searching and exploring various off-ramps that would allow them to preserve Trump's status on the ballot without reaching those contentious questions surrounding January 6th. So in particular, we saw the justices explore two off-ramps. First, we saw some justices express concerns about that a singular state, if they were to have the authority to take a presidential candidate off the ballot, of how other states might react. We saw Chief Justice John Roberts saying that if they were to uphold this ruling in Colorado kicking Trump off the ballot, what's to stop a state then from kicking a Democratic candidate off the ballot? And then the second thing we had seen from the justices is them potentially exploring a way to resolve the case by ruling that this 14th Amendment insurrection ban doesn't apply to the presidency in the first place. We saw a number of justices expressing skepticism that the presidency is included in the categories that can be disqualified from office. So still multiple options the justices have. They have flexibility in this case. But all of those options would keep Trump's name on the ballot and not get to that key question of insurrection. Another avenue that I I heard when listening to the oral argument is whether the the 14th Amendment disqualification for president, if it does apply to the president, is the same as the other requirements to run for president. Talk more about that. Well, that's right. There's a question of even if Donald Trump, even if it is an established fact that he is an insurrectionist, 
Uh, and all of that could be established, whether that still would be enough to disqualify him from the ballot. We saw some of the justices differentiating the other qualifications for the presidency. You know, there's an age requirement and a residency requirement, things like that. But they separated that out from this disqualification clause in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, whereas these, the, you know, the requirement to be 35 years old, that appears in a different part of the Constitution. You know, they were seeming to separate out this idea uh, that someone can be disqualified for, from insurrection. And that's because, you know, people were talking about cases that have come up in past years, you know, before the Trump era, uh, in which candidates who did not meet these various qualifications, whether it was age or, or whatnot, uh, and, and in some circumstances, states had disqualified them from the ballot and did not allow them to appear. Um, so, so that seems to suggest um, that there is a potential avenue for a state court here now on this issue uh, of insurrection to disqualify uh, Donald Trump. Um, but we, like I said, we saw some of the justices differentiating that uh, and talking about how Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, operates differently uh, than some of those requirements that were established in the original Constitution. We're talking with Zach Schoenfeld with The Hill. The focus is going to be on the six conservative justices because they could decide this. But what about the three justices considered the liberals? How did they approach this? I think today you even saw some agreement across those ideological lines. Take, for example, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who is President Biden's appointee. At one point, she was talking with Trump's attorney and basically seeming ready to rule uh, that the presidency was not one of these offices uh, that, that are meant to be included under the 14th Amendment's insurrection ban. Uh, so like I said, you, whether it was her um, or even Justice Elena Kagan, who is one of President Obama's appointees, she was raising concerns at one point about you know, how a singular state could disqualify a candidate um, from office and then effectively disenfranchise voters, not only in that state, but potentially other states across the country. So I think today you saw a lot of concerns about taking Donald Trump off the ballot, not only from his three own appointees on the court, the three other conservatives on the court, but you also saw some of that agreement across ideological lines. Uh, so potentially when we see a decision, I would not be surprised if this is not a, a six to three decision and potentially that there are some agreements across these ideological lines. And finally, did you hear any argument today that was unexpected? I think today really was, for the most part, as as expected as can be. That being said, I think going into today's arguments, because they have so many of these different off-ramps, there really was a lot of uncertainty in this case. You know, also, I always think it's fair to say coming out of the arguments that uh, these justices do overall seem reluctant to take Trump off the ballot. I still think it really does remain an open question in terms of, of exactly how the, what their ruling says and exactly uh, how, that, how they do that. You know, the question presented in this case, although there's many distinct legal issues, they're just simply taking up the question of whether the, the lower court, the Colorado Supreme Court, erred in its ruling. So they have, you know, potentially a dozen or even more different ways uh, that they can resolve this case. Uh, we certainly got into a lot of those today. But I think going into today, there weren't a lot of expectations, given the fact that there are so many options uh, and this is such a big case and that there are so many issues of first impression. So still some uncertainty in how the court will rule. But overall, I'd be surprised to see them take this extraordinary step of ruling that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and moving on to kicking him off the ballot. Zach Schoenfeld, court and legal reporter for The Hill. You can find his articles at thehill.com. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And now some of the Supreme Court oral argument in today's case, Trump v. Anderson, the question of whether a state can enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, determining that a candidate for president has engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States and therefore ineligible to run. Justice Clarence Thomas and Chief Justice John Roberts questions 
Jonathan Mitchell, attorney for Donald Trump. Your argument is that it's not self-executing, but then in that case, what would the role of the state be? Uh, uh, or is it entirely up to Congress to implement uh, the disqualification uh, in Section 3? It is entirely up to Congress, Justice Thomas, and our argument goes beyond actually saying that Section 3 is non-self-executing. We need to say something more than that, because a non-self-executing treaty or a non-self-executing constitutional provision normally can still be enforced by a state if it chooses to enact legislation. The holding of Griffin's case goes beyond even that by saying that a state is not allowed to implement or enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment unless and until Congress enacts implementing legislation allowing it to do so. So under Griffin's case, which we believe is correctly decided, the Anderson litigants disagree with us on that point, but if this court were to adhere to the holding of Griffin's case, there would not be any role for the states in enforcing Section 3 unless Congress were to enact a statute that gives them that authority. Counsel, um, uh, what if somebody came into a state Secretary of State's office and said, uh, um, I took the oath specified in Section 3. I participated in an insurrection, um, uh, and uh, I want to be on the ballot. Can the sec does the Secretary of State have the authority in that situation to say, no, you're disqualified? No, the Secretary of State could not do that consistent with term limits, because even if the candidate is an admitted insurrectionist, Section 3 still allows the candidate to run for office and even win election to office and then see whether Congress lifts that disability after the election. This happened frequently in the wake of the 14th Amendment where Confederate insurrectionists were elected to Congress and sometimes they obtained a waiver, sometimes they did not, and each house would determine for itself whether to seat that elected insurrectionist because each house is the sole judge of the qualifications of its members. So if a state banned even an admitted insurrectionist from the ballot, it would be adding to and altering the Constitution's qualifications for office. Because under Section 3, the candidate need only qualify during the time the candidate holds the office to which he's been elected. And under Your Honor's hypothetical, the Secretary of State would be demanding, essentially, that the candidate obtain a waiver from Congress earlier than the candidate needs to obtain that waiver. Well, even though it's pretty unlikely, or at least would be difficult uh, for an individual who says, um, you know, I, I am an insurrectionist uh, and I had taken the oath, that would require uh, two-thirds of votes in Congress, right? Correct. Well, this is a pretty uh, unlikely scenario. It may be unlikely, but no Secretary of State is permitted to predict the likelihood of a waiver because in doing so, they're adding a new qualification to the ability to run for Congress. And the proper analogy, Mr. Chief Justice, is to state residency laws because the Constitution says that a member of Congress must inhabit the state that he represents when elected. And the lower courts have all held in reliance on term limits that a state election official cannot move that deadline any earlier by requiring the candidate for Congress to inhabit the state. Jonathan Mitchell, attorney for Donald Trump, questioned by Chief Justice John Roberts. And before that, Justice Clarence Thomas in today's oral argument in the case Trump v. Anderson concerning former President Trump's appeal of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision ruling him ineligible to be on the state's presidential election ballot. More from the case, Jason Murray, attorney for Norma Anderson, the former Republican state legislator from Colorado who brought this case, questioned by Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Elena Kagan. When you look at Section 3, the term insurrection jumps out. And the question is, the questions are, what does that mean? How do you define it? Who decides 
who decides whether someone engaged in it, what processes, as Justice Barrett alluded to, what processes are appropriate for figuring uh, out whether someone did engage in that. And that's all of uh, what Chief Justice Chase focused on a year after the 14th Amendment to say, these are difficult questions, and you look right at Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, as the Chief Justice said, and that tells you Congress has the primary role here. Uh, I think what's different is, is the processes, the definition, uh, who decides questions really jump out at you when you look at, at Section 3. Your response to that? Well, certainly, Justice Kavanaugh, there has to be some process for determining those questions. And then the question becomes, does anything in the 14th Amendment say that only Congress can create that process? And, and Section 5 very clearly is not an exclusive provision. It says Congress shall have power. But maybe and put m most boldly, I think that the question that you have to confront is why a single state should decide who gets to be president of the United States. In other words, you know, this question of whether a former president is disqualified for insurrection uh, to be president again is, you know, just say it, it sounds awfully national to me. Um, so whatever means there are to enforce it would suggest that they have to be federal national means. Why does, uh, you know, if you weren't from Colorado and you were from Wisconsin or you were from Michigan and it really, you know, what the Michigan Secretary of State did is going to make the difference between, you know, whether candidate A is elected or candidate B is elected. I mean, that seems quite extraordinary, doesn't it? No, Your Honor, because ultimately it's this court that's going to decide that question of federal constitutional eligibility and settle the issue for the nation. And, and certainly it's not unusual that questions of national importance come up. Well, I suppose this state. court would be saying something along the lines of that a state has the power to do it. But I guess I was, I was asking you to go a little bit further and saying why should that be the right rule? Why should a single state have the ability to make this determination, not only for their own citizens, but for the rest of the nation? Because Article 2 gives them the power to, to appoint their own electors as they see fit, but if they're going to use a federal constitutional qualification as a ballot access determinant, then it's creating a federal constitutional question that then this court decides, and other courts, other states, if, if this court affirms the decision below, determining that President Trump is ineligible to be president, other states would still have to determine what effect that would have on their own state's law and state procedure. Jason Murray, attorney for Norma Anderson, bringing this case and being questioned by Supreme Court Justices Brett Kavanaugh and Elena Kagan. A third attorney also presented argument, Shannon Stevenson, Colorado Solicitor General. You can find the full audio. It's only audio. No cameras allowed in the Supreme Court of the case. Trump v. Anderson runs about two hours and 10 minutes at our website, cspan.org. USA Today reports that as the arguments inside the courtroom began, about two dozen anti-Trumpers demonstrated outside carrying signs like failed coup and Trump led a riot and urging the court to rule their way. Just a few Trump supporters showed up, most of them displaying 2024 election signs. Demonstrators of all stripes were outnumbered by reporters and student tour groups, one from Belgium, according to USA Today. Donald Trump today told reporters at his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida that he saw the Supreme Court oral argument, and it was a beautiful thing to watch. He also said it's unfortunate that we have to go through the thing like this. I consider it to be more election interference by the Democrats. That's what they're doing. Good news is we're leading virtually every poll. 
One reporter then asked him about the case's characterization of the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. The U.S. Supreme Court is said to be broadly skeptical in early reporting about the effort to try and kick you off the ballot. Having said that, though, I speak to the argument legal yes, uh, and otherwise that your detractors have made leading up to the day. And it's an argument that was given voice by Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, not one. All right, I got it. I got the gist. No question. Yeah, I got the gist. President Trump is practically yes. and morally responsible for okay. provoking the events of the day. He doesn't say that anymore. So let me just tell you that I heard and I watched. And the one thing I'll say is they kept saying about what I said right after the insurrection. Because I think it was an insurrection caused by Nancy Pelosi. This was an insurrection, if it was an insurrection, which there were no guns, there were no anything except for the fact that they shot Ashley Babbitt. Somebody from at least four shot Ashley Babbitt. So unnecessary, so sad, so horrible. But there were no guns, there were no anything. But if you take a look at my words right after, you take a look at my speech from the Rose Garden, which was very shortly after, or you take a look at my, I'm only on truth now, but at that time, we were tweeting, and I was on Twitter. If you take a look at those five or six tweets, you will see very beautiful, very heartwarming statements. Go home, the police are doing their job, etc., etc. Beautiful statements. If you see my statement made in the Rose Garden, I think you have to watch that. Because today they said the words of Trump. Now, if you take a look at the words of Democrats over the last period of time, look at Schumer's statement about the Supreme Court on the steps of the Supreme Court. He sounded like a mob boss. Take a look at uh, any of them. Take a look at any. We, we put together a tape of vicious, violent statements made by Democrats. Nobody brings that up. Take a look at Maxine Waters and the vicious statements that she made. I didn't do that. I said peacefully and patriotically. The speech was called Peacefully and Patriotically. It's pe- peacefully and patriotically. He said I said bad statement. It was the exact opposite. So I think you should take a look at the statements that I made uh, before and after, and you'll see a whole, a whole different uh, dialogue. Former President Donald Trump, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, speaking to reporters at his Mar-a-Lago home and club in Florida. Back to the Supreme Court in Washington, D.C., outside the court building after the oral argument in today's case. A statement by the Colorado Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, a Democrat. Uh, We just concluded oral arguments in the Trump v. Anderson case. And it's striking, just steps away from the U.S. Capitol where Donald Trump incited an insurrection, a violent mob, where Congress people ran for their lives, we saw Trump once again lie about his role in the insurrection. Donald Trump argued that all insurrectionists can be on ballots and that even if he was convicted of insurrection, that he has presidential immunity. Uh, I think it's just so outrageous that Trump continues to think that he is above the law, above the Constitution, and above the court system. You know, we are only here because Donald Trump decided to engage in insurrection instead of accepting his loss. We are only here because there's an unprecedented situation, a president who decided that he would steal the presidency from the American people. I don't believe that the president is a get-out-of-jail-free card, and I hope the justices hold him accountable.
Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is in place to protect our country from insurrectionists, understanding that insurrectionists in office are a danger. It is there because insurrectionists, if elected, can dismantle democracy from within. I'm hopeful the justices will look at the facts with an open mind uh, and make a, a big decision for the United States to protect our democracy from the danger of another Trump uh, candidacy and another Trump presidency. Colorado Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, Democrat, speaking to reporters outside the U.S. Supreme Court building. C-SPAN's communication director, Howard Mortman, had a seat inside the Supreme Court chamber for the oral argument today, and he told us what it was like. It was a packed room. Um, it, it's a, it was a lengthy uh, morning. Uh, they had a couple decisions first, unrelated, and then they went to the oral arguments. Um, uh, but both sides, meaning that uh, uh, for the plaintiff, for the plaintiff, and for uh, you know for the state of Colorado and for the Trump team, were all in attendance. So the audience was packed with with people watching and being interested. Plus the uh, the legal teams, and then me being in the press corps. That was uh, that was you know packed to the gills uh, for the press representatives there. So it's kind of one of these elevated days where everybody's focused there, plus the protest outside. So you walk into the court and there are anti-Trump protests outside, and you go in and it's a full house in there. Often a lot of people on these big cases show up to to try to get a seat. Did that happen today? There is, uh, yes, uh, it did happen. And in the press corps where I was sitting, there was a lot of chatter. Who's this? Who's that? And we're all kind of helping each other name the people. For instance, uh, for the Trump side, uh, I spotted and others, uh, other press colleagues spotted Jason Miller, uh, a Trump, um, a, a Trump campaign uh, uh, media aide, uh, Jason Miller. Boris Epstein, who is a Trump campaign legal advisor, Senator Mike Lee was there kind of on the, the Trump side of things. And for, say, the anti-Trump the uh, folks, uh, the big name was Congressman Jamie Raskin, uh, Democrat of Maryland, who was one of the impeachment managers, obviously, after January 6th and part of that committee. So uh, so clearly there was uh, interest from an elevated type of, uh, of group today. Did you have a good view? I had a great view. I had a view that um, I, I had a straight on shot of Jamie Raskin on the other side that I don't think anybody else in the press gallery press seats had. Um, I was the last person on the right before you get to the audience. I will say this, and I'm I, thanks to the court whoever seats us, that there were lesser seats for the press behind me. So if you look at business class and coach, I was uh, lucky, lucky that C-SPAN was in kind of a really prominent area to see a lot of things. Great unobstructed views of all the justices. I was able to watch um, Justice Kagan josh it up often with Justice Kavanaugh. They sit next to each other, smiles the whole time, passing jokes. Um, Justice Thomas, huge stack of doc- I think he had the most documents that I saw in books stacked up in front of him and he would lean back in his chair and by and I having never witnessed before the chairs go back uh, pretty far so they can lean back and be thoughtful uh, and pose their questions plus a lot of coffee uh, I noticed the justices had a lot of tumblers of coffee in front of them so and they had their assistants get them more as required so that was fun C-SPAN's communications director Howard Mortman thank you thank you and you can check out his post at Howard Mortman on X, formerly Twitter. 
Associated Press writing about today's case, Trump v. Anderson, the Supreme Court seems poised to reject attempts to kick former President Trump off the 2024 ballot. A definitive ruling for Trump, the leading Republican candidate for president, would largely end efforts in Colorado, Maine, and elsewhere to prevent his name from appearing on the ballot. Eight of the nine justices suggested that they were open to at least some of the arguments made by Jonathan Mitchell, Trump's lawyer at the Supreme Court. Trump could win his case if the court finds just one of those arguments persuasive. Only Justice Sonia Sotomayor sounded like she might vote to uphold the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that found that Trump engaged in insurrection and is ineligible to be president. That was from Associated Press. Again, the oral argument runs just over two hours, and we've got it all at C-SPAN.org. 2024 election security was a topic at a Pentagon news conference today with the chief of the National Guard Bureau, Army General Daniel Hawkinson. Fadi Mansour with Al Jazeera. Thank you, General, for engaging with us. In light of the uh, last presidential elections, do you assess any renewed uh, risks associated with the next, uh, with upcoming presidential elections and its aftermath that require you to deploy uh, National Guard, whether in D.C. or other places? And are you actively planning uh, for a potential demand for a National Guard service? Okay. So if you go back to the elections as early as 2016 is when we first provided um, support in terms of the cyber realm. We did the same in 2020. We had 18 uh, states that did that. Right now we have eight states that have identified their cyber elements that they're there to help support the state to make sure that there's no intrusion in the nets and that uh, everything goes free and fair. Um, with respect to you know how the Guard would be employed, you know, if you're not aware, actually go back to President Washington. The National Guard's been involved in inauguration from the president from the very beginning. And primarily there, we're there to supplement the, the D.C. National Guard um, to provide additional personnel for crowd control and other events. Um, but when you look at anything beyond that, um, obviously, on a regular basis, we look at what we have learned in the past and anticipate anything, whether it's a disaster or a civil disturbance or even COVID. And we make sure that whatever we're asked for, our folks are, are basically man-trained and equipped to do that mission set. And so if asked to do anything like that, we'll make sure that our folks are ready, um, that they have the right equipment, they know exactly what their authorities are, and we'll support our uh, um, civilian law enforcement agencies as directed by our governors. You, you mentioned the civil disturbance, and this is what I was alluding to, not the yeah. cyber threat. I'm talking about domestic threats yeah. um, that came from the highest office probably in the nation. Um, do you have any assessment of potential risks that would require uh, yourself to uh, deploy forces, or can you assure the American people that these elections will be different this time? So we've had no requests at this time, um, but obviously as we get closer to events, we work very closely um, with the governors or the mayors of the cities and also local law, local law enforcement. Because at the end of the day, they're the lead federal agency or the lead agency, and we're just there to provide additional support or manpower um, that they may need. And as we get closer, we'll definitely keep a close eye on that, and we'll be ready for whatever they ask us to do. The National Guard Bureau Chief, Army General Daniel Hokuson, at a Pentagon news conference. Another Associated Press article reads, President Joe Biden willfully retained and disclosed highly classified materials when he was a private citizen including documents about military and foreign policy in Afghanistan and other sensitive national security matters, according to a new Justice Department report. 
Nonetheless, a special counsel investigating the matter says no criminal charges are warranted for him or anyone else. President Biden talked about this as he addressed the House Democratic Issues Conference retreat being held in Leesburg, Virginia. The special counsel released their findings today about their look into my handling of classified documents. I was pleased to see they reached the conclusion I believed and knew all along they would, that there are no charges should be brought in this case. As many of you know, this was an exhaustive investigation going back literally more than 40 years, 40 years when I became a United States senator when I was a kid. I was a kid, 29 years old. Special counsel acknowledged I cooperated completely. I did not throw up any roadblocks. I sought no delays. In fact, I was so determined to give special counsel what they needed, I went forward with a five-hour in-person interview over the two days of October the 9th, 8th and 9th last year, even though Israel had just been attacked by Hamas on the 7th. I was in the middle of handling an international crisis, but I was especially pleased to see the special counsel make clear the stark differences between this case and Donald Trump. As the special counsel wrote, and I quote, Several material distinctions between Mr. Trump's case and Mr. Biden's are clear. And by the way, this is a Republican counsel. Most notably, after given multiple chances, this is the continuation of the quote, he returned classified documents and avoided, to avoid, and avoided prosecution. Mr. Trump allegedly did the opposite. This is the continuing quote. According to the indictment, he has not only refused to return documents for many months, he also obstructed justice by enlisting others to destroy evidence and then lie about it. In contrast, Mr. Biden turned in classified documents to the National Archives, the Department of Justice, consented to a search of multiple locations, including his homes, and sat for a voluntary interview, and in other ways cooperated with the investigation. That's the distinction, among others. Bottom line is the special counsel in my case decided against moving forward with any charges. And this matter is now closed. President Biden speaking at the House Democratic Issues Conference being held in Leesburg, Virginia. There is one line in the nearly 400-page report that says we have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app, which is free and wherever you find your podcasts. The Senate on Thursday, writes CNN, voted to advance a $95.3 billion foreign aid package that provides assistance for Israel and Ukraine after Republicans blocked a broader bill 
that included border security measures earlier this week. But a debate over amendments continues to slow down passing legislation out of the chamber. The major foreign aid package now moves one step closer to a final vote, which could still be days away. All senators need to agree to a timing agreement to swiftly pass legislation out of the chamber, and opposition to foreign aid from key senators is likely to slow down the process. Since Republican Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, who has long opposed foreign aid, said he will not agree to speed up the process, it will be a laborious path for the Senate to finally pass the bill. That was from CNN. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, spoke on the Senate floor after the procedural vote passed. It's a very good thing that the Senate has just voted to proceed to the National Security Supplemental. This is a good first step. This bill is essential for our national security, for the security of our friends in Ukraine, in Israel, for humanitarian aid for innocent civilians in Gaza, and for Taiwan. The bill also strengthens our military at a time when they need it most. Failure to pass this bill would only embolden autocrats like Putin and Xi, who want nothing more than America's decline. Now that we are on the bill, we hope to reach an agreement with our Republican colleagues on amendments. Democrats have always been clear that we support having a fair and reasonable amendment process. During my time as majority leader, I have presided over more amendment votes than the Senate held in all four years of the previous administration. For the information of senators, we are going to keep working on this bill until the job is done. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor. The bill advanced by a vote of 67 to 32, more than the 60 required. 17 Republicans voting yes. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, who caucuses with the Democrats, voted no. He has been saying he opposes more aid for Israel without conditions. The bill includes $14.1 billion in security assistance for Israel, $9.2 billion in humanitarian assistance that would be going to Palestinians, $60 billion to support Ukraine in its war against Russia, and $4.8 billion to support regional partners in the Indo-Pacific, including Taiwan. Some of the amendments that the Senate Republicans would like to offer, according to reports, deal with U.S. border security. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, spoke on the Senate floor today about why he opposed yesterday's bill that included a negotiated border security package and why it's still an issue for the bill that's now before the Senate. You may get this bill passed without any border, but it's going nowhere in the House. The House has made it crystal clear to get money for Ukraine and other foreign countries, we got to help our own. Our border is on fire, and I'll give you credit, Senator from Arizona, you've been trying to fix it. I appreciate what you've tried to do, but the system we've employed, uh, to my colleague from Arizona, is unlike any I've ever seen, that we're going to take a consequential moment in American history, trying to break, uh, uh, secure a broken border, and not even bring it to the floor for 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 a real debate. And the reason I voted no to proceed is because I saw what was happening. Our people on this side have been obsessed with Ukraine to the point of ignoring our border. There are people who are going to vote no to Ukraine who've always believed that the border was an excuse to try to get Ukraine. I Senator never believe that. Senator, yield to a that. question. So the bottom line 
is that this idea, because 41 of us vote no, you close out the border. How about setting down and reopening the border debate to have a, a robust debate like we did with the Gang of Eight? So the reason I voted no is I could see where this thing's going. The bill you produced, while I like parts of it, was dead in the House. I'm trying to find a way to make it better if that's possible. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, on the Senate floor, and the person who was trying to ask a question, and she was able to in the ex- larger larger exchange, Senator Kirsten Cinema, independent from Arizona, one of the negotiators for the border security agreement that was part of the bill yesterday and is now no longer because that vote yesterday failed. About today's bill, CNN reporter Manu Raju posting that Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, told me, that is Manu Raju, he will force the Senate to drag out the process on the $95 billion aid package. He said, I think we should stay here as long as it takes. If that takes a week or a month, I'll force them to stay here to discuss why they think the border of Ukraine is more important than the U.S. border. Manu Raju notes that Senator Paul voted to block the bill with the bipartisan border deal, arguing it was worse than current law. Anyone senator can object and force time-consuming votes that post from Manu Raju. And also on Ukraine today, this from the New York Times, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine said on Thursday he had removed his top general in the most significant leadership shakeup since Russia invaded Ukraine almost two years ago. This is Washington Today. From USA Today, a Senate committee chaired by Senator Bernie Sanders grilled the top executives of three major pharmaceutical companies on Thursday, seeking to pinpoint why U.S. taxpayers and consumers pay more for prescription drugs than people in other nations. The chief executive officers of Bristol-Myers Squibb, Johnson & Johnson, and Merck appeared before the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions to defend their drug pricing and spending. Senator Sanders kicked off the hearing by asking the three executives why their top-selling U.S. prescription drugs are priced higher than other nations. That was from USA Today. Here is Senator Sanders with the head of Bristol-Myers Squibb. Carolyn from Florida says that she cannot afford Eliquis, and so she will, quote, stop taking it, though I need it to prevent the risk of having a stroke, end quote. Uh, Mr. Burnham, uh, again, yes and no, please. The list price of Eliquis is $7,100 a year in the United States. Dr. Melissa Barber, an expert at Yale University, has estimated that it costs just $18 to manufacture a year's supply of Eliquis. $7,100, what we pay $1,800 to manufacture. Is it true that the same exact drug, Eliquis, can be purchased in Canada for $900 a year? Senator, that's roughly correct. Uh, Let me ask you this. Even at 13% of the cost in the United States, does Bristol-Myers make a profit selling Eliquis for $900 a year in Canada? Uh, Senator, we do make a profit. All right, so you're selling the product for 13% of what, in Canada, of what we pay in the United States, and obviously you sell it there because you make money. So, Mr. Berner, will you commit today that Bristol-Myers Squibb will reduce the list price of Eliquis in the United States to the price that you charge in Canada where you make a profit? Senator, we can't make that commitment primarily because the prices in these two countries have very different systems that prioritize very different things. In Canada, medicines are generally made less available 
and it takes oftentimes considerably longer for those medicines to be available on I, average I, I, roughly I apologize. I do apologize. I just, life expectancy in Canada is six years longer than it is in the United States. Senator Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, chair of the Health Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, questioning Bristol-Myers Squibb CEO Chris Berner. Later in the hearing, Senator Mitt Romney, Republican of Utah, said that high pharmaceutical prices may have another cause. We may not have the right bad guys here. All right. These are the guys developing cures and helping people solve disease diseases. But but we have something here they don't have in the rest of the world. These PBMs that want higher and higher list prices because they get paid based on how high the list price is because they get a percent of the list price. I'm not sure where all the money goes. Some of it goes back to patients. Some goes to the companies if they're self-insured. I don't know where it all goes, but I think that's the issue. Senator Mitt Romney at today's Health Committee hearing referring to PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers, and testimony from the CEOs of three largest drug companies. Again, from the USA Today article, the hearing comes as the Biden administration is bargaining with drug companies over Medicare drug prices and empowering the federal government to challenge patents to certain high-priced drugs that were developed with federal research money. Amid federal pressure and changing market dynamics, drug makers have taken steps to modify the hikes. Wall Street today, the Dow up 48, NASDAQ up 37, S&P up 2. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified today before the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee about her role leading the Financial Stability Oversight Council, or FSOC. She said today, like she told a House committee earlier in this week, over the past three years, the Biden administration has driven an historic recovery. Senator Jack Reed, Democrat from Rhode Island, asked the secretary about potential economic risks in the commercial real estate market. One of the issues I think we all face in our particular metropolitan areas is the falling demand for commercial real estate, which puts pressure on the banks that have lended to the developers, which puts pressures on the developers. Is the FSOC looking at this uh, in a comprehensive way uh, and impact on both the real estate sector, and also the banking sector? We have been looking at it in a comprehensive way and working with the bank supervisors to understand exposures. Um, I I believe we have discussed at almost all of our um, FSOC meetings this year, commercial real estate, and gotten reports and done our own analysis. And you're right that particularly for office buildings in metropolitan areas. Vacancy rates have gone way up, um, especially for other than Class A um, Mm -hmm. buildings. And, of course, interest rates are substantially higher. Valuations are falling. And so it's obvious that there's going to be uh, stress and losses that are associated with this. The banking supervisors are working with their banks uh, to manage this risk, to identify it. Um, I, I believe, you know, this will not end up, I hope and believe it will not end up being a systemic risk for the banking system. Um, the exposure of the largest banks um, is, is quite low, but there may be smaller banks that are stressed by these developments. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, 
Question by Senator Jack Reed, Democrat from Rhode Island, at today's Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee hearing. You can find this hearing as well in its entirety at our website, cspan.org. And thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter, Word for Word. It's free, and you'll get the stories making the headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night. 